Section 11 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cindy Henkin, Chicago, HenkinVO.com. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 4, Part 1. Progress of my friendship for Tilling. The Toy Soldiers. A dinner at my father's. The Brave Huffa. Darwin. A charming tete ending in a misunderstanding. Growing attachment. A call on Countess Griesbach. Jealousy dispelled. Absence of the loved one. A touching letter from Tilling on his mother's death. The carnival was over. Rose and Lily... My sisters had amused themselves immensely. Each had a list of a half-dozen conquests. Still, there was no desirable parte among them, and the right person had not shown himself for either. So much the better. They would gladly enjoy a few more years of maidenhood before taking on themselves the married yoke. And as to me, I noted my impression of the carnival in the red volume as follows. I am glad that this dancing is over. It has already begun to be monotonous. Always the same rounds, and the same conversation, and the same dancers, for whether it happens to be X, Lieutenant of Hussars, or Y, Brevet Captain of Dragoons, or Z, Captain of Oulons, there are always the same bows, the same remarks, the same sighs and glances. Not an interesting man amongst them. Not one. And the only one who in any case... We will say nothing about him. He belongs, I know, to his princess. She is a beautiful woman, truly. I admit it. But I think her very disagreeable. Though the carnival with its great balls was over, yet the enjoyment of society had not stopped. Soirees, dinners, concerts, the world went on. There was also a great amateur theatrical performance projected, but not till after Easter. During the fasting season, a certain moderation in our pleasures was enjoined on us. In Aunt Mary's opinion, we were far from being as moderate as we ought. She could not quite forgive me for not going regularly to the Lenten sermons, and indemnified herself for my lugormanness by dragging Rose and Lily to hear all the preachers at the Chapel Royal. The girls submitted to this easily. Occasionally, they found their whole coterie assembled at church, Father Klinkelstrom was as much the fashion at the Jesuits' church as Mademoiselle Murska at the opera, and so they were intolerably gay in a mild way. Not only from the sermons, however, but from the soirees, too, I held myself a good deal aloof during this season. I had all at once lost my taste for society parties, and delighted in staying at home to play with my son, and when the little fellow was taken to bed— to sit by the fire with a good book and read. Sometimes my father visited me at these times and chatted away for an hour or two with me. Of course, the campaigning reminiscences came to the front then continually. I had communicated to him Tilling's account of Arno's death, but he received the story rather coolly. Whether a man's death was painful or painless seemed to him a secondary consideration. To be left on the field, as death in battle is called, 
appeared to him an end so glorious, so bestowed by such an elevated destiny, that the details of the bodily suffering, which might possibly have occurred, was not worth taking into account. In his mouth, to be left on the field always sounded like the grudging admission of his special distinction, and next to being left, what was most pleasant, evidently, was to be severely wounded. The style and manner in which he proudly showed his respect for himself or anyone else, in saying that he had been wounded at a fight, named after this or that place, made one quite forget that the thing itself could have given anybody pain. What a difference from Tilling's short recital. In his sketch of the ten poor creatures who were shattered by the bursting shell and broke out in loud shrieks. What a different tone of shuddering pity in it. I did not repeat Tilling's words to my father because I felt instinctively that they would have seemed to him unsoldierly and would have diminished his respect for the speaker, which would have hurt me, for it was just the horror, unsoldierly it might be, but certainly nobly humane, which he saw and told of the terrible end of his comrades that had penetrated into my heart. How gladly would I have spoken further on this theme with Tilling, but he seemed not to wish to cultivate my acquaintance. Fourteen days had elapsed since his visit, and he had neither repeated the visit, nor had I met him in society. Only two or three times had I seen him in the Ringstrasse, and once at the Burg Theatre. He bowed respectfully, and I acknowledged his greeting in a friendly manner, but nothing more. Nothing more? Why did my heart beat at these accidental meetings? Why could I not, for hours, get his gesture as he greeted me out of my mind? My dear child, I have something to beg of you. My father came into the house one morning with these words. He held in his hand a parcel wrapped in paper and added, here is something I am bringing for you, as he laid the thing on the table. What, a request and a present together? I said, laughing. That is bribery indeed. Then hear my request before you unpack my gift and are blinded by its magnificence. I have today a tedious dinner. Yes, I know. Three old generals and their wives— and two ministers and their wives, in short, a solemn, stiff, sleepy business. But you do not expect that I... Yes, I expect you there. Because, as ladies are pleased to honor me with their company, I must at least have a lady to do the honors. But Aunt Mary has always undertaken that office. She is again attacked today by her usual headache. And so I have nothing else left but to offer up your daughter, as other fathers did in ancient times? For example, King Agamemnon with Iphigenia? Well, I submit. Besides, there are among the guests a pair of younger elements. Dr. Bresser, who treated me in my last illness so excellently that I wished to show him the attention of an invitation. And also Lieutenant Colonel Tilling. Why, you are getting as red as fire. What is the matter with you? Me? It is curiosity. Now, I really must look at what you have brought me. And I began to take the parcel out of its paper wrapping. Oh, that is nothing for you. Don't expect a pearl necklace. That belongs to Rudy. Yes, I see. A plaything. Ah, a box of lead soldiers. But, Father, a little child of four cannot... 
I used to play with soldiers when I was only three years old. You can't begin too early. My very earliest impressions were of drums, sabers, maneuvers, words of command. That's the way to awaken the love for the trade. That's the way. My son Rudolph shall never join the army, I interrupted. Martha, I know at least it was his father's wish. Poor Arno, he is no more. Rudolph is all I have, and I do not choose that he should join the noblest and most honorable of professions. The life of my only child shall not be gambled for in a war. I was an only son and became a soldier. Arno had no brothers, as far as I know, and your brother Otto is also an only son, yet I have sent him to the military academy. The tradition of our family requires that the offspring of a Dotsky and an Althaus should devote his service to his country. His country will not want him as much as I. If all mothers thought so, then there would be no more parades and reviews, no walls of men to batter down, no food for powder, as the common expression for them goes, and that would be far from a misfortune. My father made a very wry face, but then he shrugged his shoulders. Oh, you women, he said contemptuously. Luckily, the young one will not ask your permission. The blood of soldiers is running in his veins. Nay, he will surely not remain your only son. You must marry again, Martha. At your age, it is not good to be alone. Tell me, is there none of your suitors that finds grace in your sight? For instance, there is Captain Olensky, who is desperately in love with you. He has been just now pouring out his sighs to me again. He would suit me thoroughly as a son-in-law but not me as a husband. Then there is Major Millersdorf. No, if you run down the whole military gamut to me, it is in vain. At what time does your dinner take place? When shall I come? I said to turn the subject. At five, but come half an hour earlier. And now, adieu. I must go. Kiss Rudy for me, the future commander-in-chief of the Imperial and Royal Army. End of section 11.